Hello, welcome to a podcast for the Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology to accompany our new series on ageing and endocrinology. I'm delighted to be joined on the line today by Dr. Van der Bell, Dr. Heap, Dr. Peters and Dr. Hassan Smith, each of whom represents one article in our four-paper series. So starting with you, Dr. Van der Bell, tell us a little bit about the key issues from your paper and what's some of the most important research covered? In this paper, we have reviewed uh, the response of the different components of the human endocrine system to the aging process and we have covered the different hypothalamic pituitary peripheral organ axis as well as bone growth and glucose homeostasis. Um, during aging, changes in activities of various endocrine systems do occur, including altered hormonal secretory patterns and modulation of feedback sensitivity. The magnitude of these changes, however, varies considerably between individuals. So far, it's not completely understood what explains the different patterns of hormonal changes between individuals. And in addition, age-induced age changes in endocrine activities are difficult to disentangle from the influence of other factors that are common in older people, such as uh, chronic diseases, inflammation, and low nutritional status, all of which can also affect endocrine systems. So the key points of the different headings of the paper, which, are, which is divided in the thyrotropic, the somatotropic, adrenal, and gonadal axis, and calcium and bone and glucose homeostasis, are as follows. Uh, the age-associated changes in thyroid hormone are highly variable among individuals, but the overall thyroid hormone access activity seems to decline with age. These changes, however, are not related to a detrimental aging process and might even be beneficial. With regard to the somatotropic axis, uh, aging and the so-called somatopause are accompanied by a decrease in the concentrations of growth hormone in IGF-1, but no single intervention has been proven to be effective at halting or reversing somatopause. Further, aging is accompanied by changes in ghrelin, cholecystokinin, and leptin physiology. All these changes seem to direct in a significant and clinical relevant drop in appetite. Concerning the adrenal axis, aging is associated with increases in late-day and evening cortisol levels, an earlier morning cortisol peak, lower circadian amplitude, and more irregular cortisol secretion patterns. The question remains whether these alterations reflect or cause aging-associated changes in, for example, functional ability, cognition, and mood. In women, changes in gonadotropin secretion throughout menopausal transition and after menopause, characterized by increased, increased luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone pulse amplitude and loss of pre-ovulatory gonadotropin surges are caused by altered feedback resulting from the intrinsically determined ovarian decline in sex steroids, inhibin A and inhibin B production. In generally healthy aging men, there is a slow progressive decline of serum testosterone levels between age 25 and 27, and meanwhile, SHBG concentrations increase. Serum testosterone circadian rhythmicity with higher morning levels is blunted. With regard to bone health during aging, intrinsic mechanisms in bone are coupled with changes in the endocrine systems with aging, with a main influence of loss of sex thyroids, but also with increased production and sensitivity of glucocorticoids, a decrease in growth factors, a decrease in vitamin D production with development of secondary hyperparathyroidism, and several age-related endocrine morbidities that influence bone health. And finally, there's incontrovertible data showing that glucose homeostasis tends to disorder lineage with increasing chronological age. Fasting plasma glucose rises by approximately 0.05 millimoles per liter per decade, beginning as early as the fourth decade of life, 
while the two-hour glucose level after 70 grams of oral glucose tolerance test also, also gradually increases. To conclude, we have reviewed the changes in activities of various endocrine systems during aging, differentiating whether these changes are due to the aging process per se or whether they are related to other processes is difficult. Some of these changes could be a better beneficial adaptation to aging, whether others are not. Thank you very much, Dr. Van der Velde. Absolutely fascinating. So, turning now to uh, Dr. Eve, your paper covers testosterone in the in the aging process. Can you tell us a little bit about the key issues from that? Sure. So, the review that we wrote um, examined questions regarding testosterone treatment in older men, and specifically, we wanted to look at the results and the clinical implications and the unresolved questions from the testosterone trials. So the background is that men who have pathological hypogonadism, who are androgen deficient because they have hypothalamic pituitary or testicular disease, warrant testosterone therapy, and that's pretty much irrespective of age. But as men grow older, as Dr. Van Bell has already said, the circulating testosterone levels decline. And we know that in older men, lower testosterone concentrations are a predictor for a range of poorer health outcomes including worse cognition, depressive symptoms, frailty, incidence of cardiovascular events, particularly stroke and mortality. But what's not clear is whether or not older men who have lower testosterone concentrations should receive testosterone in the absence of pituitary or testicular disease. So the T-Trials was a North American um, initiative. It was a coordinated set of trials to look at this question. And the investigators randomized a total of 790 men aged 65 years or older with a baseline testosterone of less than 9.54 nanomoles and symptoms consistent with hypogonadism to testosterone or placebo for 12 months. And the results of the T-trials were that testosterone in these men improved sexual function, but the other two primary outcomes of physical function and vitality were negative. So there was a modest improvement in sexual function, but the difference between the testosterone and placebo groups was beginning to narrow at the end of the 12 months of the trial. And there was no difference in the proportion of men who increased their walking distance in the actual physical function trial. There was a small increase when they looked at all of the men in the entire cohort. There was no difference in self-reported vitality, and there was no difference in cognition with testosterone therapy. Now, anemia improved and bone strength improved. There was a really intriguing finding for coronary atheromatous plaque because this was a small sub-study within the larger study and there was a greater increase in plaque volume in testosterone-treated men, but the testosterone and placebo recipient groups were unmatched. The placebo recipients had a lot more plaque at baseline and at the end of the study, so the results are really difficult to interpret. In the actual T-trials, there was no signal for adverse cardiovascular events. There were seven men in each arm of the trial that had major cardiovascular adverse events, same in both arms. So this actually doesn't change our current practice. It's not a new indication for testosterone treatment, but the findings are very intriguing. There are some benefits. Now, the big question is, does testosterone treatment in older men have beneficial neutral or adverse effects on the cardiovascular system? That's still unanswered, and that still remains to be proven. 
But the you know, main sort of unanswered question from the testosterone trials is that they've seen some benefit in anemia and they've seen some benefit in bone strength. And will these translate into longer-term benefits such as better functional status or reduced instance of bone fracture? So overall, it's a big advance in our knowledge, but it still leaves us some very, very interesting unresolved questions to look at in the future. Well, thank you very much for that overview. Turning to you, Dr. Peters, your paper, uh, your review, covers the thyroid. Why don't you tell us about some of the most important research that, uh, that came into this paper? Our paper discusses different uh, clinical aspects of thyroid function and thyroid dysfunction during the aging process. And the way we built up the, the review is that we first kind of discuss the physical, physiological changes that occur, uh, why this is important, uh, particularly with regard to the interpretation of thyroid function tests in the elderly and whether or not this should also uh, affect the reference ranges that we use uh, in, in elderly people. From there, we discuss different treatment considerations for both clinical as well as subclinical thyroid disease in the elderly. And finally, we discuss the relationship between also normal thyroid function with regards to common diseases of the old age, including cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, cognitive impairment, and frailty, and also how this seems to be relevant for a healthy aging process. So what struck me uh, when writing this review and going through the literature again in detail is how aspecific symptoms of thyroid dysfunction can be in the elderly, and with many patients having very few or hardly any symptoms. And on the other hand, we know that the prevalence of thyroid disease increases with aging, since thyroid dysfunction is, is really one of the most common disorders in the elderly, with a prevalence that is up to as high as 20% in some studies of community-dwelling elderly. So this, this high prevalence is, is important, because despite the fact that these patients have sometimes very few or otherwise age-specific symptoms, it is still important to diagnose thyroid disease because, because thyroid hormone is really essential for a normal maintenance of function of many organs and tissues, particularly the cardiovascular system, bones, and the brain. And as a consequence, thyroid disease has been linked to multiple age-related diseases in the elderly population, and uh, also subclinical thyroid disease has been uh, associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease an increased risk of osteoporosis and fractures, as well as an increased risk of dementia. In, in the more recent years, uh, more and more evidence has emerged that in the elderly, as was also addressed by Dr. Vanderbilt, a slightly lower thyroid function may be beneficial since low or even low normal thyroid hormone levels in the elderly seem to be associated with a longer lifespan and also a lower risk of cognitive impairment. And what's interesting is that these findings are not only related to, to clinical or subclinical thyroid disease, but this even seems to extend into the normal range. Because also high normal levels of thyroid hormone, for example, have been associated with an increased risk of sudden cardiac death, ischemic heart disease, cerebral vascular disease, dementia, and even vision impairment. And in a recent analysis in a, in a Dutch cohort of participants, we, we showed that participants with concentrations of, of thyroid hormone in the low part of the spectrum live up to 3.5 years longer than those with 
relatively high normal thyroid hormone levels. And of these 3.5 years, it's it's up to 3.1 years without cardiovascular disease. So really seems to be related to a more healthy aging. There are several possible explanations for this, and, and one suggests that there may be a beneficial effect of a lower metabolism in the old age, but we, the truth is that the exact mechanism is still unknown and needs to be unraveled. However, as a consequence of, the, of these studies, the discussion on optimal reference ranges of thyroid uh, function, particularly in elderly populations, has been uh, rejuvenated. And future studies that investigate the effects of more age-specific reference ranges in the elderly on outcomes that are relevant for thyroid function, such as cardiovascular disease, neurological disease, uh, may lead to more optimal health ranges of thyroid function in older people, and that will also help us to design future clinical trials investigating the effects of manipulation of, of thyroid function. So finally, Dr. Hassan Smith, your paper looks at frailty in aging. Why don't you tell us about some of the key findings? Yeah, so myself and Dr. Clegg um, looked at frailty in the endocrine system, and we cover a whole range of uh, sort of different hormone axes. Um, in particular, we focus in on glucocorticoids and the growth hormone IGF-1 system, but we also uh, cover vitamin D and um, androgens and insulin resistance. Um, and as a starter, really, frailty will be familiar um, to those working in the healthcare sector. And I think it's sort of best thought of as sort of ad adverse aging. Um, and it affects about one in 10 of those aged over, over 65 and up to half of those over at the age of uh, 85. Um, and um, if, you think of a, if you think of a case um, of an older patient presented to an emergency department with a fall, um, who's been brought in from home by carers, you delve into the history and you find they've got multiple comorbidities. They might have hypertension, diabetes, ischemic heart disease, um, cognitive impairment and multiple falls. Um, long list of medications. They're on, uh, they use walking aids and require assistance with activities of daily living. And when they're admitted to hospital and treated for the underlying condition, which could say be a chest infection, um, they require a prolonged admission and a prolonged period of rehabilitation. And in spite of this, after all of this intensive uh, treatment and re rehabilitation, their function does not recover to the baseline and they actually require a step up in, in their care. And if you contrast that with a patient at the same age who sees their family doctor but is living independently, they may receive the antibiotics and recover quite quickly to their usual level of functioning. Um, so that sort of really raises the question of whether or not there's anything we can do to prevent um, frailty at all. Um, and the formal definition of, of frailty involves the loss of biological reserves across multiple organ systems um, with a failure of homeostatic mechanisms of which end the endocrine system is obviously important and central to and vulnerability to this sort of decompensation that I've described after minor stressor events and the whole range of adverse outcomes that it's associated with. So that's why it's important um, in terms of falls and delirium and nursing home admission and mortality. Um, there's different models that, that people use in clinical practice that are really coming in uh, to the fold uh, to actually formally categorize uh, frailty. Um, and that's a weakness of some of the work that's out there at the moment is there's lots of work on the endocrine system and, and aging itself. Um, but there's not so much um, out there where people are 
sort of formally being categorized and well phenotyped um, with uh, with frailty itself um, so but there are the data coming through and there's data that we've uh, that we outline in the, in the paper and um, sarcopenia is interconnected to uh, to frailty and sarcopenia is this sort of loss of muscle mass that's associated with aging and it's akin to osteoporosis um, and in recent years, it's been appreciated that actual muscle strength is more important in terms of adverse outcomes. Generally, people who are older with low muscle strength don't do as well. And in older people, muscle strength declines by about 1% to 3% per year. Um, and the way that we've sort of started looking at the endocrine side of things is really sort of comes from work looking at endocrine myopathies. So endocrine myopathies are really well characterized um, within, within endocrine disease as are deficits in a whole range of other um, tissues. Um, and these tissues are important with aging. So if you think of a patient with Cushing's, for example, um, they have sort of core to that, the discriminative feature is, um, is muscle atrophy, um, but they also have CNS effects, there's effects on insulin resistance and metabolism. So a link between these hormones and, and aging and adverse aging is, is sort of biologically um, plausible. Um, so in the, in the paper, we basically go through lots of the data and we've really restricted it to looking at um, studies where they've used frail, uh, frail cohorts, so patients who've been um, sort of characterized well using, uh, using frailty markers. Um, and if we start with the HPA axis, which I think is particularly interesting, and glucocorticoid um, secretion, um, as, a, as a sort of been outlined previously, um, this is... This, is coordinated by um, factors and a whole number of factors, but they include response to physiological stress and inflammation, and inflammation is important as people get older. Um, and obviously several Asian studies report this blunting in the circadian rhythm and recovery from stress, um, but the actual, whether or not there's actually an increase in glucocorticoid secretion with age is, is pretty uncertain. Um, the, uh, just to go through a couple of sort of research highlights, there's a cr cross-sectional studies um, looking at 214 women with frailty, where they've shown that um, frail um, women have uh, chronically elevated cortisol um, concentrations. There's also work um, which has looked at the pre-receptor glucocorticoid metabolism, so basically activation of uh, glucocorticoids at the tissue level um, in metabolically important tissues via the 11-beta-HSD1 um, enzyme. And this has shown relationships with um, cognitive function via hippocampal atrophy, with muscle turnover, with skin phenotype, and with bone uh, metabolism as well. And from the point of view, if we look at growth hormone IGF-1 access, it's likely to have an important role within frailty. Um, there, are, there are a number of uh, observational studies. There's one study where they looked at 494-year-old women uh, with low IGF-1 who were found to be more likely to be frail. And there's a cohort study with over 500 um, participants, which shows that there were associations between uh, IGF-1 and sarcopenia and frailty scores. There was also a longitudinal study which looked at over 3,000 men that were living in the community who were aged over 70, and they found that um, IGF-1 actually predicted uh, frailty. Um, vitamin D um, is there's lots of interest at the moment with a lot of the uh, sort of large uh, consortia-based studies looking at vitamin D supplementation, and we're awaiting uh, 
the outcomes of those. But in terms of long, in terms of observational studies, um, there are a number of studies that have shown associations with with frailty. So the Concord Health and Aging study in men, which has looked at um, over 1,600 individuals and found that low vitamin D is associated with frailty. There's the Toledo study of healthy aging, which looked at nearly 600 um, patients and had similar um, findings. Um, so, so overall, um, sort of to summarise, I think um, obviously frailty involves com complex sim symptoms. Um, there's changes in multiple hormone axes. It's unclear whether or not you know the hormone changes are the main driver of uh, the phenotype. It's likely to be more complex than that, and I think that there's moderation from factors including nutrition, exercise, um, and inflammation as well. Um, and a lot of the data that we have is epidemiological, and the stronger data is looking at the HPA axis and IGF-1s. And I think the key thing moving forward is to look at the, um, particularly with, with the vitamin D side of things, you know, how, well, how that sort of modulates things in terms of supplementation. Um, and also to look at, you know, a lot of the, through doing a lot of the reading, when we look at the pathways that are involved, a lot of it actually can be impacted on by nutrition and by exercise. So I think that's quite important. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you all so much for those overviews. Can I just put it to you generally, each of you then, in that in that case, what does healthy aging look like? How how can we age better? Dr. Vandermill, if we can come to you first and then we can have a, a wider discussion. So uh, a difficult question. I mean, a good nutrition and exercise, as mentioned before, uh, uh, I think I think uh, I think our main issues. I think it's important to look at future studies. If that future studies uh, should uh, should aim to explore which endocrine alterations are maladaptive or beneficial to aging or adaptive, um, and uh, then um, future research can tell whether we can correct uh, these changes by. Uh, pharma pharmacological interventions, for example, but so far that's, uh, that evidence, uh, I think it's, it's limited. I guess healthy aging would mean you are fit, you're active, you avoid all the you, you know, comorbidities you expect in, um, in older people. How to achieve that? I think the, you know, someone's already mentioned this, you know, you want to remain fit active and well and if possible avoid putting excessive weight and then all the other sensible things um, not smoking avoiding excess alcohol and if you're aging healthily from the testosterone perspective you're probably making a reasonable amount of endogenous testosterone on your own so here you can use that as a biomarker for your overall health, and it's also you know, bi-directional. It's a biomarker. It's also a contributing factor. Yeah, I would agree with all all of that. But I think um, I think it's obviously uh, sort of starting the starting point of this. When I got into sort of aging um, research, I think a lot of the focus was right. Can we look at these pathways and see how we can sort of pharmacologically. Uh, sort of modulate um, things and actually looking into it more and more. I think it's taking that sort of life, life course approach, um, taking that sort of public health measures, you know, approach. So looking at obesity, looking at activity, looking at the way that we work and the way that we um, sort of go about our daily activities and, and looking at diet and things. So there's a whole bunch of um, research outside of the endocrine sphere that's looking at that and looking at how best to uh, 
sort of uh, sort of prescribe exercise as well and how and what to prescribe in terms of nutrition as well. So I think that's quite important. Yeah, I fully agree with what everyone has been saying, as well as from parallel to the testosterone perspective, I think it's very, it's very similar also with regard to thyroid function and aging, is that also uh, a poor kind of, uh, a poor general health usually also contributes to lower levels of thyroid hormone. You could argue whether or not that is an adaptation of, of the body to the aging process or not. I think what is also interesting uh, in relation to, to healthy aging is that what uh, healthy aging, at least to me, means not only being fit, being active, but also being without comorbidities. And one of the interesting things that, that we see in, in, uh, in relation to thyroid function and aging is that th an optimal thyroid function may be a relatively low normal level of thyroid hormone for specific age-related diseases, but it may not be to all. For example, uh, we see that studies looking at thyroid function in a normal range, that high levels of thyroid hormone are associated with an increased risk of, for example, uh, vision impairment, an increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, but on the other hand, also with a decreased risk of diabetes.